It's been a little while, Sajiwa, since uh, we got together. I think it was late last year, and, and now we're we're in 2024. I, I can't believe it. And we're kicking things off with Indie Scene with a truly special occasion. We're talking to Rick Schmidt. And for folks out there who are following, they follow the show, Indie Scene, they know that we talked about Rick's uh, amazing film, Chet Smoka's Curse, uh, a few years ago. And, you know, I was I was blown away by it. Um, and now we're going to talk about, among other things, uh, a film that he did back in 1983 uh, called Emerald Cities. And in addition to that, he's got another project in the works. Uh, Sajua, you've got a whole bunch of like news and things to talk about. So there's a lot of things going on on the indie scene. But uh, I want to start off with, since this is a brand new year, brand new show, uh, Sajua and Rick, welcome. And how are you doing? Hello. <laughs> Pretty good. Thank you. All right. Is it really uh, another year? What happened to the last one? Man, when I blasted that? through. Seriously, and we're almost in we're almost in March. I, I can't believe it. The time is just it's speeding up. It's it's crazy. Um, but we're actually gonna go, we're gonna travel back in time to to Emerald Cities. Uh, we'll get into that, but um it, how do we want to play this? Because as I mentioned, there's a lot to tackle. Uh, one thing I can tell you is how I found the location for Emerald Cities. Sure. The little, the little uh, kind of restaurant outpost. Um, in other words, uh, I had uh, about three days to shoot in Death Valley. And a friend, I, I told a, a friend of mine who was gonna also loan me the camera and shoot with me. And he's the guy you see in the wide shot where there's a curtain there's the actress. I'm holding one end of the curtain. Uh, Kelly Bowen, the actor, in another scene is holding the other. Uh, at any rate, uh, Bill said, my friend Bill Kimlin said, I don't think you should camp. I don't think it's wise to camp while you shoot this movie. I think you actually need to pay for motel rooms. So that's kind of the beginning moment of, oh, okay, I guess I've got to... Uh, can't quite lowball it that far. You know, we can't be sitting in the dirt and then actually make a movie. So that was the number one consideration. But now let's call it day one after we were in the motel. We wake up and I'm going, well, I'm going to try and find a location. There's sort of the gas station restaurant that I need for the movie. Uh, we eat breakfast in a little cafe kind of a deserted part of Trona. And now we're driving in two cars and I'm looking for some kind of gas station, cafe looking thing that I can try to convince people out of the blue to let me shoot and take over their lives. Uh, I'm driving for about 45 minutes. And what I notice is there's absolutely no buildings. It's not that I see any like, oh, that might be good or that good, or we're going through a little strip of a town. After 45 minutes, it dawns on me that I'm simply driving in a desert and there's not one structure. There's nothing. So I kind of, uh, no, so there's an hour and a half or an hour of the only the three days I've got. I turn the cars around. I, I pull over. I said, guys, let's go back the other direction, try again. In fact, I'm, I'm getting tired. Let's have lunch. We go back to the original cafe. And I mentioned to the waitress, uh, do you know any place that sort of is like a gas station and sort of a eatery kind of thing? And she goes, well, there's Charlie's Place in Ridgecraft. Ridge, Ridgecrest, that's the name. Maybe that. So returning to the same restaurant, a tip from the waitress. And that was the location we ended up with. I mean, it was just, there was no way to pre-plan uh, a location in this deserty area. Yeah, before the computers and internet. Yeah, there was no images. There was no, I mean, I looked in the yellow pages, but once again, and even the place I found, there were no gas pumps. In my mind, I imagined that there were gas pumps around the corner where you couldn't see. So when Ted Falcone of Flipper drives in to the rear, I just have Ed, Ed Nyland saying, well, we don't, we only, 
only pump ethyl, not regular gas. That's right. Well, I was wondering when I was watching the movie where the gas pumps were. <laughs> well, you know, this is sort of a sleight of hand that is um, we somehow pulled off, I would say. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. how it feels anyway. Yeah. You know, watching that scene, I didn't even it didn't occur to me that I didn't I didn't even notice that there were not gas pumps. I guess I just figured like they were, as you kind of mentioned, around a corner somewhere. I was more focused on what was going on with the characters and, and the situation of uh, Z trying to get away from Ed. But before we get into that, we should set up what Emerald Cities sure. is about. And and Siju, I think we're going to play around with the format here and talk about what's coming mm. up like project wise towards the end, because we're already we're already out in the desert here. That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. We can right. review all the screenings and the Indiegogo later towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but okay, so the the movie is about a guy named Ed who, uh, in the words of his daughter Z, is uh, sober two days a year. It's her job to to make sure that he's sober for two days a year so he can play a, a department store Santa or or basically the Santa in this town uh, of Trona in California. Mm -hmm. um, and one day she gets fed up with his nonsense because he you know they live in this small little place. He's got a television. It's it's a little green, tele, the green screen. It's a color TV, but that color happens to be green. Um, and she wants, you know, she says even a black and white television, a new black and white TV would be better than this, you know, crappy green thing. And he says, well, you know, this this is the these are the Emerald Cities, the windows onto the world. And so he doesn't want to get rid of it. He does, however, buy a, a calculator that plays music and is very obnoxious for the same amount of money with which he could have bought a television. She gets fed up, leaves dad stranded when this musician kind of rolls up onto the gas station. And the movie sort of becomes Ed's quest to hitchhike to San Francisco and get reconnected with his daughter. In the midst of all of that, we've got inserts of man on the street interviews of a guy asking people how they feel about Santa Claus. And then it's gradually revealed throughout the film. I don't want to spoil it, but something tragic happens involving Santa Claus. How that factors into the story we're initially telling, I'm not going to say. But we also get punk rock music video inserts. We get uh, news footage from the Reagan administration, all this wild test footage of, of you know nuclear bombs going off. It's a wild movie and the kind of film that you know, I'm thirsting for in the mainstream. I, I don't know. It's been 41 years since the movie came out, right? And I don't know why no one has adopted this sort of template to incorporate reality and fantasy mm. into something that's not quite a docudrama. It's its own beast. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Two questions. Mm -hmm. In in opening this this story with you driving to find that location and up doubling back and, and right. kind of coming to it uh, by circumstance mm. you have three days you've spent half of one of them at least trying to find the location and also you didn't know that you're going to have to pay for a motel instead of just like camping out what does this do to your time and how do you make that up in a budget well you know if you were shooting real time you could do an hour-long movie in an hour i mean it, it's just uh, the only the only way I can piece it together is uh, I made another movie called The Higdon Man. Uh, that was shot during a film festival in um, Arkansas. And I, I had two actors with me that were in another movie I was showing there at the film festival. Uh, and I, it, each day clicked by and I said, well, I guess I can't really make a movie. It, it came down to two days left. And I said, it was 10.30 at night. I said, guys, let's just start shooting now. I shot sort of a basic scene. And then the next day we shot that whole day. The next day we shot uh, just the morning and got on the plane. And that was, I did the whole movie in a day and a quarter. Now with Emerald Cities, there were many little facets of it. It was sort of, um, in my mind, the basis would be that Z, the actress, is wearing like black velvet and you know she's making a speech with an academy award my idea was it was going to be about how she broke away from the desert and got to the big city with that effect of the curtain drop and all that that was sort of just an initial uh, little energy idea that i had uh also i had the idea that um 
they see the whole world through this broken color television and the whole the real world is out there and they are only picking up information about it on the TV. So to break away from what I'm saying now, uh, at Target Video, my friend Joe Reese uh, was editor of a lot of punk rock movies, uh, punk rock bands. Uh, he was dubbing my movies that were made before Emerald Cities. And uh, one day I was in there and I said, Joe, uh, I, I have a thread going about uh, interviews with Santa Claus and uh, nuclear war. I mean, I'm thinking this, the whole thing was starting in 79, I could not believe it was going to be 1980 because 1980 was the future. And of course, after 1980, you have 1984, which is really the future. So I was thinking uh, end of the world stuff. And that's drew me into the nuclear, the nuclear issues. Now, Joe had a ton of those beautiful, those beautiful news clips that he had collected. And I know Joe from art school. So I'm sitting in the dubbing room and I say, Joe, what do you have? And he starts showing me these things and I say, I'll take that. I'll take that. Oh, that's great. Take that. Put that on the roll too. And all that stuff was accumulated within, I'd say, 45 minutes. So I got all the, the heavy hitting news stuff. Now, let's flash forward to the time that uh, I was doing the interviews on the street, on Market Street in San Francisco. They just emptied out mental institu institutions. It was sort of a famous thing that they just opened the doors to the institutions. The people who were crowded on the street had just gotten out of mental facilities. Also, there's a handgun ban at the time, a handgun ban in San Francisco. We used actually the, uh, the wooden handgun from Chan is Missing, my roommate, who I helped edit that movie for, had, I don't know, I ended up with a gun. So that was the handgun we used to kill Santa. <laughs> it's sort of a process and it, it's sort of, uh, the wall was 1984, heading for that with the movie making process. And that basically brought all the energy to focus in on that. And since Ed was beginning to play Santa Claus in the desert, those, those interviews of, uh, have you heard that Santa's been shot? Just sort of came out of the, the dread of 1984. We're living in the future. Mm -hmm. There's no past or present anymore. And even the, even the young woman who says, I believe that by 1984, sim things will be similar to George Orwell's book. Where did she come from? <laughs> I did not tell her to say that. We're just doing a, an interview of her and she just, she probably signed a release that said, yes, um, this movie's about 1984. And then she made a statement, you know, either Willie Boy Walker, who was interviewing her or I said, well, that's what the movie's about, because people tend to ask that question. And that just came right out of her. Both punk, the, punk, punk rocker, you know, uh, probably. Right. Both uh, this movie, two observations slash questions, both this movie and most of your other movies are like uh, a fictional movie plus the making of the movie all combined into one, right? With the interviews, with the direct interviews that you do, it you know takes people out of the regular narrative. So that's that creates a unique kind of you know a third kind of film. And uh, Emerald Cities had a good reaction at the festivals, and then it was uh, and a famous a famous Danish filmmaker helped you bring it back. So do you want to talk about some of that? Well, yeah, the miracle of the uh, resurrection of Emerald Cities was that uh, the guy who did the, res the uh, res restorations for Nicholas Winding Refn, who did the movie Crash and a few other things with, with Ro Ross and uh, Ryan Gosling, 
the restorer was a ba uh, the bass player, the new bass player for the Mutants band. And the Mutants and Flipper are the two bands that are represented in the movie. Right. Now, I went to art school with the, the musicians of both the bands. This is That's why they, right? this is kind of the flow that um, uh, an improver like me gets into. I have two groups of people, two great bands. Uh, I found out from Freddie, the lead singer of the Mutants, that he had seen A Man, A Woman, and a Killer, my movie, with that co-directed with Wayne Wang, my roommate at the time. He'd seen that at the Pacific Film Archive. And he said, well, shit, Rick made a real movie. I guess I can start a real band. No. <laughs> so so the, it was connected in to a friendship and that particular moment in time. As far as Flipper goes, um, I've been a friend of Ted Falcone for 40 years. And um, he was a fan of probably the first movie and Showboat. Uh, and he... Uh, the one of the there's so many odd things that go on in this improv process. One of them is I couldn't understand how Ted found in Ridgecraft in Ridgecrest. Pardon me, I keep saying the wrong word. I don't know how Ted found the chute in the middle of the desert, <laughs> 30 miles outside of Trona. It must have been that he went to breakfast in the cafe and said, do you guys know anywhere that they might be making a movie? <laughs> and, and the same waitress would go, well, yeah, I talked to the guy and I told him, go to Charlie's place. There's just no other possibility. But Ted just drove down to the desert. Yeah, the and, movie and, is and I, I'll just say one other thing. When he, you see his red car roll into the parking lot and understand the timing of what Ed and Z, the actress, were talking about, we just rolled the camera when he rolled in. He didn't roll in and we tell him back up and roll in again. Nice. <laughs> he just arrived and rolled in exactly in the storyline moment that we were shooting. And it was just like, move over there, get the shot. Now, those are things that almost are impossible to understand when you, when you, compare this against the regular process of making movies. Um, also, I might add that the, the house that we, when we drove up to Charlie's, uh, my friend Bill once again said, you don't know if this guy's gonna even let you shoot there. You need to offer him at least 50 bucks. <laughs> Big money. And, I, and, I, and here's the, the more odd part. So Charlie took the $50. He was real happy about that. Uh, in advance, I didn't even know he had a television, much less a battery-operated one that we could move out onto the table. So lots of improvisation. Uh, yeah, the improvisation and sort of just jumping in. I mean, I sort of tell this in my book, you know, the feature filmmaking used car prices book. You, once you take the risk, of making a movie of this sort, at least outside of the normal process, these uh, miracles sort of start to rain down on you. And in my case, after like over 25 features, there have been so many of these kind of odd miracles that a friend of mine said, Rick, you just depend so heavily on miracles. Do you, do you know that or you, are you aware of it? And I'm, I'm saying, yeah, to the point where if suddenly I, I'm making a movie like Bread Machine, uh, if the miracles just halted, I'd say, okay, I understand. I have, I have somehow drained the miracle, whatever, uh, earn or, you know, not earn, but miracle rain. I could face that. But I think that even, even the fact that I'm now buying uh, Bread Machines, and I have up to 12 bread machines. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on top of the movie now a little bit more because I, 
I'm ready to uh, install or flood this one this one couple's life with 12 bread machines. And I haven't even met the husband yet who's playing the lead role with his wife, who's my granddaughter through my adopted children. You have any even... questions about the Emerald City's part before we move on to bread machines? Yeah, of course. Hold on. Well, I... Well, yeah, I mean, we'll no. we'll we'll talk about uh, bread machine in a bit because I I gotta know about these twelve bread machines, um, but I I just want to ask because it's it's amazing to oh. me you're talking about miracles and and filmmaking and things kind of uh, coming together as they're supposed to, because even though Emerald Cities is sort of a a controlled chaos experience to watch. Because I'm watching the story about this guy traveling to San Francisco to meet up with his daughter. And all of a sudden, I'm faced with a weird press conference of this guy who's running for you know, some political yeah. office talking about how we're going to uh, cancel the space program on, on his watch. Let them come to mm -hmm. us. We're going to, his first official act is going to be to banish the year 1984 because we just don't want to deal with it. We're going to start everything over in 1985. Mm -hmm. And then there's a music video. Uh, that that kind of interrupts the story some more. And then we go back to Ed and his quest for Z. But it feels so crazy that I can only think this is the product of a brilliant screenplay where everything was mapped out or at least rediscovered in the edit and put together. But from what it sounds like, you're just kind of, you know, you're rolling film, you're, you're taking what you can get. Uh, you've got the idea of a story that you want to tell you're kind of leaving it up to the universe or whatever to figure out how it's going to help you tell it. Have there been any situations, maybe the answer is no, where the miracle didn't happen, where you were stuck and you had to, I don't know, maybe maybe using your wits or some other inventive way to get out of it is the further miracle. But tell me about a situation where things didn't work out. Uh, let's see, to lead into that idea... I'll just say that the guy, Lowell Darling, who's who's the, the politician, um, he's a conceptual artist who is a dear friend of mine. In fact, he lived in my attic after he uh, lost an apartment or whatever happened uh, with my wife, Julie, and me. He lived in our attic. I said, well, the attic's free. I want you to move in there. So he's a dear friend. I know him very well. I know his art. He had that concept of 1984, you know, canceling that year out already. He also had part of his um, his riff was um, uh, no more space program. Let them come to us. That was already in the works in his um, his performance concepts. Uh, so when he was going to make a speech at the uh, the Berkeley Museum. I shot that. I shot that speech with the microphones and all of that, and uh, it just seemed like all these these elements kept um, accumulating for me to shoot and use. I mean, part of my art is the editing. I mean, that's what I've been able to do. Uh, edit my way through, say, a man, woman, and a killer, which you may not have seen yet, and I tell people. Uh, well, I shot it with Wayne Wang. We shot it over 10 days in Mendocino. And it took me, oh, almost a year to get two scenes to work together. It took that long to figure out the narrative thread of that movie. I was editing every day in a commercial lab, paying the rent of an of edit room. Uh, Emerald Cities is another kind of editing uh, magic zone that I operate in, where I, I, I said, Lowell, I need you to be on stage during some of these um, musicians. And he goes, great, I have a girlfriend, I'll bring her in. And, and then I said, I need Willie too, because he's doing these interviews out in the street. So you see them all on the, um, on the stage. Uh, Arnie Passman is a Santa Claus who makes this the speech about being Jewish, Santa Claus. He just, I don't know where he came from. He <laughs> just suddenly showed up and great, just say whatever you're going to say, Arnie. Uh, he was a performance artist and kind of a, a Berkeley, sort of, some, sort of a legendary guy, an artist. So 
people would appear in the middle of my scenes who I didn't invite. I didn't even know them. I'm still talking about the success of the miracles. And even let's, let's not talk about them in miracles anymore. Let's talk about them more as a flow in an artistic environment. Because once again, moving it back to the, the, uh, the interviews on the street. Um, uh, I knew that Ed would arrive in San Francisco and somehow connect with his daughter uh, through the postcard that I had that showed the pyramid building, the downtown and so on. So I bought that postcard and I had her write on it, I'm here with an arrow, me arrow. And I did a whole nother trip in Death Valley with my wife, Julie, who shot all those stills of Ed holding up the postcard and, you know, doing the cuts. So it's finally showing that's where he, that's where she is in San Francisco. So once again, arriving up the escalator in San Francisco, I'm already shooting there. I've got the crew. Uh, let's start interviewing people about Santa Claus. <laughs> and at some point, I think the tide turned where we, I mean, I can't even imagine where it turned, but it was like, well, have you seen Santa get shot? You know, call it um, evil thoughts or, uh, you know, <laughs> it was just that at some point, uh, the editing process of banging the, how do you feel about Santa Claus? with nuclear war started to generate its own momentum. And the, 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 uh, the line of people that we found just were uh, ironically the right kind. Some like the guy that never even, like Willie somehow uh, uh, intuitively understood that the guy he was talking to probably never got a Christmas present. So he's, he's talking about, well, the guy, so he says, well, how do you feel about never getting a, a present from Santa Claus? And I goes, you know, he's a chump anyway, or, you know, I, I, these, well, these yeah, I real think people. He, he's, I think he had said something um, about, well, he, he didn't really, it didn't matter because his mom gave him presents or something like that. Right. I get, he says he gets presents from his mother anyway. That's what it's supposed right. to be. So, but those things, it's like the, the evolution of this film is taking place right on camera is what I'm trying to get to. The, the process is so alive that there's, there's, a, there's a direction that's picked up right in the middle of shooting something. An idea might come in, you know, an hour into a two hour shoot that we're doing on the streets of San Francisco. So basically to answer your question, looks like Rick finds the uh solutions either through the filmmaking or the editing when he runs into a problem. Well, I mean, it's, yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I had my way out of a paper bag or however you want to look at it. But, you know, I would still call that pretty miraculous or, you know, cosmic intervention, whatever you want to call it, because, I mean, if you hadn't discovered that nuclear footage that was made available to you, you might not have put that connection together with, you know, shooting these Santa Claus interviews and, oh, what if something tragic happened to Santa Claus, which sort of informs the way that your story resolves itself. It's almost like you are constantly in the process of editing reality, taking in all this kind of sensory information that you get and thinking consciously mm -hmm. or subconsciously, I can make this work for my movie. Now, my question is. Mm -hmm. When you are shooting something and you're experiencing all this stuff and maybe you capture footage that you don't quite know what to do with, let's take in the case of Emerald Cities, was there anything that you had picked up or filmed or thought about that you didn't use in Emerald Cities but came into play in like a later project? Well, not really. I mean, it's hmm. like every, pretty much every spec went into Emerald Cities. I mean, uh, even the uh, some of the footage where they're uh, sort of uh, military experts talking about um, uh, the idea of a nuclear explosion in San Francisco, All, and also saying that the whole 
all the armaments in the US are already nuclearized. The howitzer goes boom, and there's a little tiny nuclear bomb out there in the desert somewhere. Uh, that was all one from one documentary that I got the rights to run in the movie. Uh, it's, it's in the credits. I can't remember the exact name. Uh, it may come to me, but uh, at some point, I my mind was tripped into learning that bit of information. I approached those people, and they were more of a rock-solid uh, expert speaking about the, the dangers of the MX missile. So it's just, I mean, this was over a two-year period. So it was sort of like I'm editing, I'm shooting. Uh, there are areas when I can't do anything because I'm out of money. Uh, I got an NEA grant to start the process. Uh, then about two-thirds through it, I was paid by Channel 4 in England for a showboat that showed at the London Film Festival. That money rolled in, 6000 uh, half of it, that was half. That allowed me to clear the debt at the lab, shoot more footage, transfer it, and then finally getting onto their kinescope machine with all the video to transfer it to 16 millimeter. And uh, in, in that case, I was uh, at $50, $50 a minute, very careful in what I was going to include. And at the same time, figuring out that I could do the credits by um, uh, pasting on an anim animation pegs right on the top of the video screen. Right. I mean, I did plan for that. And I had all the credits as codo lists that I could then put them into the pegs, pull them off, put another one on, and uh, did 20 credits without screwing up at $50 a minute kind of thing. And, nice. and then, you know, seeing that I could have the bands hiding behind the the words or partially seen and then flip it out. Also uh, making the commitment to turn some of the news footage into green emerald. Mm -hmm. Not the, you know, that's, you know, that was irrevocably decision-making. I would have to live with that if I was wrong. So, you know, it's just, these are all fun, but scary tasks, especially when the money's flowing that hard. But over the two-year period, I'm growing through the, the I'm throwing, I'm growing with the accumulation of the elements, and I'm always editing in my head the whole time. I'm making a movie. I mean, there's always, and when I'm in the edit room, I'll go to sleep with no idea, and I'll wake up. Oh, I'll try that. I'm sure it's you and everyone who's ever done a movie outside of the harshly scripted Hollywood process uh, is, even, even it's got a little editor in their head, like John Malkovich's whatever. <laughs> and that I, I'm thinking that somebody's like actually doing a little rewinds, which mm -hmm. is sort of a 16 millimeter image, but there's some part of the brain that is not giving up and it's yeah, making similar, the connections. Yeah. Similar to writing scripts. What was uh, the reaction like when you first showed the movie and were you surprised? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, because I, I mean, the, the first, uh, person who sort of flipped out was my friend, John Jost, a filmmaker of many feature films. He said, we didn't say, holy shit, but he said the equivalent of that and going, I can't believe it. This thing is actually doing so many more things than I thought it could ever do. And I might add that John also said, Rick, uh, if you're going to kill Santa or, you know, have a shot of him being shot on the street, he says, I'll shoot it for you because, well, I'm a better shooter anyway. I don't know if you saw that. He probably did. He said, well, let me help you. And I'll, I said, well, I got a camera. He says, well, I, you know, I've got a better camera. <laughs> so he did shoot the, where the gun comes into Ed. That's his camera. And you see me, there's a pullback. And there's my Bolex that I borrowed from California College of Arts and Crafts at the time. Uh, within the framework of this of this little comments, um, I didn't have any. I did not have an actor who was going to be handling the wooden gun and putting it against Ed as to kill him. 
So I was looking around, oh, oh, there's a secretary, I'll try her. Would you mind taking this fake handgun and sticking it in Santa Claus? She goes, oh, no problem. I said, just got to sign this release. So, you know, that's another part of it. I don't, I have not cast that part. Mm -hmm. And yet you would say, well, that's a little odd. You're going, that's the biggest moment in the whole thing you seem to be doing in, in reality. Uh, that seems a little loose. I go, well, I mean, I can only handle so much. So once again, there were 40 people around. I would have asked 40 of them. That was probably the, that was probably the only person I asked. Well, what was the like festival the, and the film world reaction to the movie? Well, let's see. Uh, in, uh, it did get into Rotterdam. Very good festival. Um, I sent a VHS or something, and I'd already shown in Rotterdam with a man, woman, a killer, and showboat. And I got this a telegram from uh, now Cube Balls, the director, right? Mm-hmm. Hubert Balls. He said, we love your movie. That was the telegram. We want you, you know, nice. we want you to come. And they're paying for it. I'm going. And actually a friend in New York said, I was in there with, I happened to carry my passport for hopeful possibilities like this. And I had it on me in New York. Nice. He said, Rick, I've got some exciting news for you. You're going to Rotterdam. He wouldn't even tell me on the phone. Anyway, so I flew right out from New York to there. That was a last minute thing. I was already there. In in Rotterdam, um, I was sat next to a uh, a programmer for the Everyman Theater in London, and another famous guy. I can't remember. I don't know who he was. And then a uh, a woman who went on to produce many films in the UK and such and so on. They flipped out. They were screaming. They were. <laughs> Loving that movie, and I think especially me and dare I say a dress, uh, and that's when I got it, like a show of Emerald City's End Showboat at the Everyman Theater in London. Awesome! So it was well, a hit show. It was an exciting show for me. I got. I got to ask that again. This seems for folks out there who have not watched Emerald Cities. The ex- my experience of watching it, it was like a ma- it's it's an imperfect analogy, but it's like a mashup of, you know, a Christopher Guest mockumentary mixed with the end of Western civilization meets kind of Robert Altman and a million other, you know, kind of incongruous ideas that come together to make this perfect piece of art at the end. The conceit of the story, and I assume this is true, is that you lose your lead actress, Z does not finish the picture. And you, as you just alluded to, stand in for her mm. in a really brilliant, you know, ter- it's a, it's not, it's not enough that you kill Santa Claus. Mm. Okay. We're already in the spoiler territory, but it's not yeah, enough we, to we kill Santa Claus. Yeah. But then your lead actress uh, disappears. She runs off to find her dream in a movie about how she had realized her dream. And now we're seeing it in flashback. Was that all true? Right, and tell right. me about how did you how did you handle that? How did you decide? Okay, I'm just gonna wear the dress. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's funny because um, the the speck of an idea that I started with, as you can, as I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, discussion, was that she's holding an Academy Award in front of what looks like an award type uh, red velvet curtain, and she's gonna say, well thank you very much for this Academy Award. And she made up what she said about me, thanking Ricky Schmidt and all that. Um, and the curtain drops and she, well, she says, uh, it's been a long way from Death Valley, longer than anyone knows. In fact, here it is. So now she's gonna tell you uh, the story of how she be- won the Academy Award as a, an actress. Because I thought at the beginning, well, she's a professional actress. Uh, let's make a movie. This is the third in a trilogy. Let's make a movie about her winning the Academy Award and just use that as a, a lead in. And uh, in the midst of it, by the, the time two years had gone by, she had taken the risk of moving to New York and uh, doing some kind of uh, an attempt to be an actress in the system there. And uh, 
there was no money to fly her back in for a couple weeks. Mm. You know, so I don't believe I even uh, tried to do that. There was no budget. I was minus budgeting. You know, the whole thing was I was in a minus budget just with the cost of the film processing, the stock, um, the editing, all that. I thought, well, uh, got the dress. <laughs> I can probably uh, shoot around it. Um, also, at that time, I had uh, made a connection to a past life therapist, which are those scenes where Ed and Dick are in a classroom being videotaped. And actually, Joe Reese, the video guy who from Target Video that shot many punk rock bands and helped me with the footage of the atomic warfare, uh, shot that footage for me at the past life therapist. So uh, I also allowed myself to be hypnotized <laughs> for a scene in the dress, which you'll find deep into the, the, the inner sanctum of Emerald Cities. And that was just another aspect of uh, being able to have the footage cut back to the, the bands, cut back to the nuclear war, and even insert uh, stories about my father who was in war in World War I and shot with a Gatling gun. Uh, you know, there's the, that other bunch of layers of my personal real life stories are in that movie. Uh, a movie about the making of that movie would be very interesting. There, uh, there are like, more specs, like, like, yeah. Uh, like a um, Pulp Fiction Tarantino type movie about the making of now I did make you know I do have a book on the making of Emerald Cities called New Dark Ages mm -hmm. which is the title of the song that's played by the mutants and so on which I call uh, how a how a improv movie Emerald Cities how, how a punk movie Emerald Cities found its improv good book got its improv and it tells the story of most of what we're talking, but we're actually we're actually a little bit farther than the book. This is it's a little bit hard to to write some of this, and you're sort of drawing me out to uh, at least make an attempt to explain the process because there's a certain amount of magic. Uh, any artist knows it, a, a painter knows it, a sculptor knows it, a filmmaker knows it, and it's what we get to do outside of the Hollywood system, because we simply get to flow uh, and we get to not know everything. And we get to have, we are open enough because it's an open system that people will come into us and even to the point where they're saying, poor Rick, he doesn't know what he's doing. You got to help this guy out. You get all, the, the, you, it's coming toward you. And in my mind, I mean, I, I just, I'm thankful every time that an actor, that I'm able to let the actor use their their intelligence, that I'm not trying to stuff scripting down their throat. I just delighted and thrilled to have them do that. I mean, I, I like to, I like to, I'll just point back to uh, Chetzamoka's Curse for one second. Steve, the older guy is with Maya Bertold, the actress, in a, a in a motel in the hotel room at the at the Palace Hotel in Port Townsend, where we shot. And he's saying, and she's saying, uh, maybe we should go to Thailand. <laughs> and Steve goes, "Ooh, uh, are you sure you want to go there? Everybody's going to think that I'm your dad." <laughs> now, I did not tell him to say that. She goes, ask me if I care. I didn't tell her to say that. You know, they were so embedded in the, in the, in the characters. That at that point, he's really saying that. And she's really saying that back. Yeah, good, and she uh, wasn't, and she, I never told her, you're a prostitute. I just had her operating out of that hotel. 
but with the scene where more than one man, you know, is sitting with her on her bed, like you pointed out before in the other podcast. Yeah, it looks like. And she says, "What?" And she says, "What do you want to do?" And the guy says, "Just talk." And she has this smirk. What do you want to talk about? You know, it's just it's just coming naturally from their intelligence and they're they're having fun with some aspect of it. So so Justin Melka's course I'm gonna be showing in Brooklyn late March. I'll send you the link in uh it'll be information will be at uh Indie Discovery LA website. And we're doing a uh crowdfunding project for Rick's next movie, Red Machine. I'll send you the link for that. And Rick has books about a lot of these films as rewards that you can get, uh, that donors can get uh, from the Indiegogo for the Bread Machine. And I think that's about it. So I'm going to be showing four movies, uh, Cosmic Disco Detective mm-hmm. Renee, Chetsamoka's Curse, and Memoria by Apichat Pong Rasathikul, who did uh, Uncle Bumi, who can recall his past lives, plus a really weird movie called Man Baby. All that info will be at the website for uh, Indie Discovery mm-hmm. LA. Two movies at the end of March, most likely Renee and uh, Chetsamoka's Curse at the end of March, and then two movies, Memoria and uh, Man Baby at the end of April. I'll, uh, Man Baby is April 20th. So I'll have all those dates at that website. I'll send you the links. Oh, yeah, and we'll have the links to all of that in the, the description below, so folks can, can definitely check mm-hmm. that out. So, Rick, tell me about, and Sujiro, because you're, you're involved in the campaign too, What tell us about uh, Bread Machine. Well, let's let's call this a moment the uh, the beginning part of the flow process. In other words, I had an initial image of um, somebody, a couple probably, um, becoming so desperate that they would try to open up a bakery in their house by uh, filling their house up with bread machines that ideally they could buy on time with a credit card. And um, there were some funny things about it. I imagined them uh, blowing fuses in their apartment building. I imagined the, uh, the funny little way in which uh, the extension cords would be leading out of their apartment, down the hall, into other apartments because they were going to blow all their fuses. And I thought that's pretty funny. And that an uh, extension cord would, come, would be going out their window and dripping down their, the side of the building and plug into something else, a lawnmower, who knows. So I originally made um, a Photoshop shot of all the bread machines I could kind of uh, cut and paste into a, a Victorian apartment. And that was just sort of sitting on Facebook for about two years, I guess. Uh, Sejua sort of helped me you know, get a little, uh, a new Facebook page. And it was just sitting there and it was just sort of uh, teasing me personally, I guess you'd call it, saying, are, are you really going to make me a movie or just this is just a funny image? And then um, my son, Morgan Schmidtfing, who is uh, shooting a documentary on me with my daughter, Heather, and they've already produced a teaser that's about 14 or 15 minutes long, said, well, Rick, uh, you're going to be turning 80 within a month or whatever, which I'm turning 80 in March. And they say, we want you to, uh, we want to shoot, we want you to shoot that, that bread machine thing. We want you to make that movie. We're paying for it. And we'll also be shooting you shooting the movie for the documentary which they already have shot like 20 hours of interviews with me many of my friends uh and you know i want to make sure Saju is interviewed as well uh so the that was like a freebie i'm going i really uh, you know okay I, i'm gonna i'll take it on give give me a movie and we're doing the indiegogo to help lower the cost for everyone yeah, to absorb the cost because um, my daughter's not a pro producer financially. <laughs> and so thanks to Sejua, we're, we're trying to soften the blow a little bit. 
but I might add she's already paid for my the rental of my house that I'm living in during the the 10 day Bay Area shoot. Uh, she's already uh, footed the bill for 12 bread machines. That's a lot. <laughs> and um, uh, she's going to have to, uh, I, I, I've, I've fallen into the process of going, yeah, we need some dough nations. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're working on. Uh, because I'm we sure. are going to be, uh, we're going to be buying a lot of flour. Yeah. And, and the couple that's uh, that's uh, now in line to be the couple that is facing uh, a mortgage problem or at least losing their apartment and uh, finding the bread machine in a dumpster and the wife brings it home and the, the little kids, which they have two of in real life, are going, what's that, mommy? And so, and then the husband's going, we don't have money to buy a, a bread machine. And she goes, oh, I found it for free. And within part of the story, it's going to be a pile of 11 more in the, in front of the door because she's taken it upon herself to take the last amount of money on their credit card that they hardly have and say, we're opening up a bakery in our house. I got this idea. And also the history of, of bread in general. I'll just, I'll give you one more little spoiler. Uh, I didn't know this. My wife dug this fact out. In uh, Syria, when a couple is married, they have a they have a uh, an event where they throw wet dough at the door of the recently married couple. And if the ball of dough, when they throw at the door, if it sticks, it looks very promising that they're going to have a happy marriage. <laughs> if it slides down the door, they are in trouble. <laughs> so. That's just one very odd thing that we are going to be doing. We're going to be throwing, you know, somebody's going to throw dough at that door. And also, by the way, the couple, to protect the, the, uh, the, the vibe, they actually work to clean the door to make sure it's clean enough for the dough to stick. That's how they temper the, the whole process. So there, there's so many facts about that and how ancient bread is and how many... Given civilizations that would live live or die on bread, the production of bread, the flow of of wheat, there's so much history that that's what we're delving into right now. I I gotta ask, I want to bring this point back around to Emerald Cities, because watching this movie, which is 41 years old, I can't believe you're 80. Mm-hmm. I mean, because wow, oh, uh, but. Well, but I can't either, Ian. But of course, that's two of us. Well, but here's the thing: like, well, I, I'm, I'm watching Emerald Cities, and I'm thinking, of course, you show up at the end of the film, but it felt like the work of a very young—I don't mean inexperienced, but a very ambitious, creative—you know, just a Mm -hmm. live filmmaker. And you were probably around forty when you made that, which you know Mm -hmm. gives me hope. Um, But. Watching Emerald Cities now, mm. you've got the people who are obsessed with television uh, to the point where they don't really want to go out and experience anything. They want to see the world through television. We're going through that now with mm. TikTok, with YouTube. You've got the threat of you know mm. global catastrophe, nuclear war, which we're on the precipice of you know again mm. today, and a lot you know uncertain yeah. political climates. Everything is 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 circling back around. So even mm. though the movie is forty, you know, it's four decades old now. It feels, you know, mm. minus the fashion, possibly, uh, like it could have been made today in some fashion. Mm. Now, when you're preparing to make bread machine, and you said that you're at the start of the flow process, in addition to the history of bread and, and things that you're talking about incorporating into your story, are you also, you know, 41 years ago or 40, you know, two, you're taking news footage, you know, nuclear test footage, that kind of stuff, and incorporating mm-hmm. it in a contemporary sense to your artwork? Are you scouring the internet? Are we going to see like TikTok clips and you know CNN footage or, or whatever kind of incorporated into oh. you know this version mm. of the story? Maybe not CNN, but you know local mm. coverage or something, something that you can use without getting sued into oblivion. You know that hasn't come up yet. Uh, you know it's uh, what you know what I, I'm finding I'm focused on right now is the fact that this couple has two adorable children. 
And uh, this is a mixed marriage. Um, they just had a, a little girl. Uh, DJ is uh, their son, who's actually my great-great-grandson from an adopted... Uh, I adopted my uh, daughters of my first marriage when I was 20. And they... Uh, they actually, when you adopt legally, they they backdate your your age on a certificate. So they said I was 16 when one of the daughters was born. Mm -hmm. So that's how come I have a great great grandson, and uh, he's in the movie. And I keep thinking um, the most adorable part is when uh, there's some kind of a meltdown, and they I I'll just put it this way: there's a flower fight. In other words, throwing flour two directions to a point where they almost look like ghosts. And then the children walk in on this and are just aghast. Or, you know, I'm so I'm 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 excited to tap that that childish energy of the two real children of the two of the real couple that are gonna be in the, the hot seat or the the same the lead actor zone. Uh, by the way, I'm also bringing back Z. Caroline Zaremba, who's the star of Emerald Cities, has got a part in this one. And, uh, he found the budget to fly her in. I, yeah, flying, <laughs> I, here's, here's how I, I put it. I'm flying her in to Oakland from San Francisco. Nice. I mean, that's a joke, of course. I'm going to let her take Uber across the bridge. Now, the idea that of... Should, that should be to... one of the reward tiers on, uh, on your Indiegogo yeah, campaign. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, by the way, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, make logical use of 12 bread machines. Uh, the I've, I've already ordered some little wiggly eyes. If you know what I mean, dolls have wiggly oh, yeah. eyes. Oh, yeah. And they stick on the bread machines so that I can make them user-friendly to the children. And I just keep getting, you know, one more, one weird image after another, which is what, uh, some of the bread machines are mostly white. But I have a colored one and an all-black one. And I, I'm not that I'm giving the whole movie away, but I think that maybe the little girl somehow takes the little bread machine into her bed as a pet. And they're going, where the hell is the red bread machine? <laughs> so it's just, it's just kind of, you know, these ideas are coming every day because I'm going to be uh, trying to do something. And, and we will take sponsors from bread companies and bread machine companies who want to put millions of dollars into this project. Exactly. <laughs> well, if I mean, I, if, if nothing else, I mean, you could probably, you've got 12 bread machines so far, add another <laughs> tier where, you know, you could win a sign, you know, a signed bread machine. Once the screen used bread machine from, from bread. Exactly. Machine. They, they could be a perk. And also uh, all the person has to say is, do they want wiggly eyes or not? You know, there you go. I also have some other things, but uh, back to the original question about footage from TikTok or some video. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any dog that's eating peanut butter in this movie <laughs> and choking on it. Or, you know, I just um, I'll, I should never say never, but um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And who but knows? I, maybe but, maybe uh, interviews like these will be on there. Say that again. Maybe uh, video interviews like these will be on there. Very possibly. And so some of it is, you know, beautifully out of my control, obviously. In the, in the edit, when you're editing, you'll figure it out. Exactly. And well, then, and I know, couple a uh, couple of years worth or whatever it takes, but. That's right. Again, I'm going to have these people right here shooting me. Mm -hmm. in, Morgan is shooting me, but he's hired a whole nother team Chris Brown, who did uh, Annie, Fanny, and Danny, I think that was the title, is an another feature filmmaker, is the documentary crew that's already shot a portion of the doc on me. Rick, so, you, can, you can film those people, and uh, the plot of the movie could be uh, a documentary crew was recording these people trying to make money out of uh, creating lots of bread. Exactly, because there is a, there's a level of success that I've had fun imagining that, you know, there's a couple of different levels. One is the, the bakery actually works mm -hmm. and they become very, very famous overnight. 
So they have a like, video crew coming by to exactly. Yeah. And yeah, even my, you know, there's a, a, a birthday party in the works for me, but it will be the biggest production part of the movie and it won't be mine until the, until I say cut. Then we could hopefully there's some cake left for me to eat and the rest of the people who are shooting. But um, yeah, I would never let, let go of a, a major event like that, big budget event. One One last thing, you had mentioned that there's sort of a, I think you called it a teaser trailer or a trailer that's like 14 or 15 minutes long. Is that like a proof of concept of this documentary that they're putting together? Or is it something that you can share? Because I would love to see it and share it with oh. people if it's ready to. Oh. If it's not, you know, we can wait. But yeah. I'll ask my son. He's uh, he's thinking that it should be um, exposed to the world, I think, when he starts his own fundraiser event. But, but what it is, it's sort of a... It connects the dots of me having written feature filmmaking at used car prices. It has uh, Kevin Smith in there saying um, he used it to make clerks. Uh, it's got a mention of Vin Diesel, who's also has been on talk shows saying uh, the book made his career. I mean, every time, the first time he appeared in The Tonight Show saying my name and the name of the book, the sales just shot up to the top nice. on Amazon. So, and every time I think he says, he likes to mention that his mother bought him the book. So he, he enjoyed continually mentioning his mother. And every time a new movie came out and he was on another talk show, he would mention my book again, like eight, eight, eight movies in a row. Nice. So that was kind of the miracle of getting that book out and people saying, well, if it's good for him, I'm buying a copy, you know, and it's like, uh, yeah. So that, so that that's, trail is not, a, go ahead. That trail is not available to the public yet, but uh, if it yeah. becomes available, Rick will email you. Yeah. Rick I think, I yeah. Morgan may weaken when I, when I plead for him to let you see it, it's a very tight, very interesting documentary. If I do say so, I mean, it sort of catches me up and, um, it talks about, uh, me, uh, convincing Morgan and Heather to rent an RV to drive all the 10 boxes of my originals to the uh, Motion Picture Art and Sciences Archive in LA, which is what we did. They took all my all my 16 millimeter. So it's all kind of... Uh, in, I've in seen Scott. it. It's interesting. It's all interesting. At the, you know, I suddenly made it to the Academy Awards via that in their One mind. Anyway, it's nice to know it's safe. And there's, you know, they went through all, they go through all the prints, they make sure the spices hold. It's in the right air conditioning rooms. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a, a good filmmaker's dream. That's right. To have that stuff archived and available, maybe for somebody to make a print or whatever. And it's not just going to be uh, mildewing in my storage anymore. <laughs> So that was very nice. But Rick, I, that's incredible. And congratulations on that. And, oh, you thank know, you. I can't wait to see Bread Machine uh, just based on your description and just the ideas, the possibilities. I'm seeing mm -hmm. a version of the movie in my head. Oh, oh that's um, fun. And, and I want to see this this documentary oh. about you. So thank you very much for, for hanging out and talking with us. Um, folks, I'm mm -hmm. going to have a link to the Indiegogo for Bread yeah. Machine down below. <clears throat> I've supported it. You can support it too. Um, there's some really cool perks in there, including signed copies of some of Rick's books, including uh, feature filmmaking at used car prices, including like vintage copies of it, I guess, which is really neat. Um, so yeah, check it out, support it. Um, also, you know, I'm going to have the links to the uh, uh, Indie Discovery LA uh, film series down below. So, you know, you can check mm -hmm. out those uh, those movies that Sajua mentioned. Um, Sajua, you've got you sent me the link to it. I have not watched. I'm sorry, I'm a bad friend, but you've got a new trailer for Cosmic Disco Detective Renee, which I will link to as well. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll resend that link. OK, well, I have it. I just haven't okay, watched okay. it yet. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's been one of those weekends. Uh, it's got press quotes. It's a little bit better. Awesome. Well, mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so I'm going to let us all get out of here. It's late. and um, But yeah, everybody check mm -hmm. out the Indiegogo 
Also, check out uh, Emerald Cities. Uh, you can rent it on Amazon. You can also check it out on, on Mubi. Uh, it's it's unlike anything you've seen. I guarantee it. Unless you've seen Rick's other work, in which case you're probably like, yeah, it's a masterpiece. It's amazing. So, thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys. Take Good care. And talk to you soon. Thank you guys. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.